Hey, Trumpcast listeners, it's Virginia Heffernan. I hope you've been enjoying a few non-Trump gems from Slate in the feed. What a relief. But today we're going back to the dude President Biden calls the former guy. This is a podcast I've been working on almost since the inauguration with Lawfare and some Trumpcast favorites, Jack Goldsmith, Bob Bauer, Ben Wittes, Mary Trump, David Korn, and many more. Jack and Bob, as you may know, published a terrific book called After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. The book's about what it will take to rebuild the republic and inoculate it against another Trump. We've used the book as the basis for our podcast, also called After Trump. Now, why would I want to revisit the headache? Here's why. If Trumpcast chronicled the virus, After Trump chronicles the vaccine. It's an incredibly optimistic, pragmatic, and hopeful show, and for the vindictive side of Trumpcast listeners, it even gets into the prosecutions of Trump that might come next. I'm extremely proud of this series after Trump, so thanks for giving it a listen. No president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, has ever, ever, Cross that line. And um, the president continues to tweet and act he's a showboat. He's a grandstander. The FBI. I think they're unprecedented uh, in their inappropriateness. You know, a president should not be commenting on any uh, particular criminal investigation. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Shocking statements on the rule of law in the United States of America, acknowledging. Boys, stand back and stand by. Then I have an article too where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. A source tells CNN that President Trump is discussing preemptive pardons for people close to him. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. It is hard to put into words what exactly we witnessed today because we've not seen this before. Thousands storming the Capitol after a rally with President Trump during which he urged them to march on the Capitol. The word used over and over, even by secular Americans, was desecration. The iconic U.S. Capitol building had seemed like the last redoubt of shared American values. Not a partisan catchword, not an abstraction like liberty or justice, not even the hallowed document of the U.S. Constitution. But the building was the familiar and beloved and above all shared U.S. Capitol, the public thing, the race publica, Watching armed hooligans flying Confederate and Trump flags storm the Capitol, calling for the hanging of the vice president, made literal the four-year-long lament that this is not America. The insurrection of January 6th was no less shocking because it had been brewing in plain sight for years. Many of us, with a range of ideologies, had warned about the ways Donald Trump's reckless violations of standing norms, not just decorum, but baseline moral principles weakened the infrastructure of the American government and left it vulnerable to attack. 
I'm Virginia Heffernan. For the past four years, I've hosted a podcast called Trumpcast. I've done over 100 episodes, each one devoted to another facet of the migraine, the admittedly interesting migraine known as the Trump administration. So whether you love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. I am the chosen one. Somebody had to do it. We're going to build the wall. Mexico's going to pay for the wall. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. But then all of a sudden, it was over. Trump was voted out, and the siege on the U.S. Capitol turned out to be the last stand of Trump supporters aiming to install their hero as a forever president. And in spite of their efforts, President Biden was sworn in without incident two weeks later. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. We celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause. The cause of democracy. The will of the people has been heard. And the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious. Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. There was indeed a sigh of relief. But the republic after Trump sometimes still seemed to be hanging on by a thread. And as it turns out, I'm not the only person thinking about what happens after Trump. So we had reserved um, a small conference room at Harvard Law School and blocked out the day to outline the White House counsel book. That's the voice of Jack Goldsmith, a Harvard Law School professor, former Justice Department official, and one of the founders of Lawfare. Jack is someone who thinks deeply about the limits and proper role of executive power, which is why he found himself in conversation with his colleague, Bob Bauer. Bob was White House counsel under President Barack Obama. And we thought if we're going to write about the ways in which Donald Trump's presidency has exposed uh, for analysis, uh, for a reckoning, as we discussed it, we started talking about the Office of Legal Counsel. We started to talk about the issues the White House counsel had been involved in. We started talking about the extent to which Trump had, you know, crashed through norms. They were worried about the institution of the presidency. The era that would come after the Trump administration would be a critical time for the rule of law. And that's when they had the idea for a book some of the major institutional problems that have surfaced uh, in the presidency, uh, the weakening of norms, the creeping reach for power, uh, the absence of adequate legal constraints. The conversation kept coming back to these broader issues, and we were thinking about you know, what would be the most valuable use of our time. And by the end of the day, we, we had decided that we would try, and it was very tentative, that we would try to consider and outline this larger project. And by the time we uh, put together a list, we had the makings of a book that is, you know, 300 and something odd pages covering a wide range of topics. That book is After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. This series is a look into that project, an exploration of the many, many, many things that went grievously wrong during the Trump 
presidency. Sort of a guidebook to reforming our laws, norms, and even ethical codes so we never face a catastrophe like Trump again. We wanted this to be uh, you know, the place where people could go to put what Trump did in context, and we wanted this to be the first book one would read before deciding what to do about Trump. There have been discussions and concerns about abuses and excesses of presidential power, frankly, going back to the 1790s. We've had a constant debate about this question, especially since uh, the Nixon years and the imperial presidency. And so periodically there have been mounting concerns because it was clear that constraining norms and legal limits on presidential assertions of authority were not accomplishing their intended objectives, uh, that there were you know, slippages and excesses that people had reason to worry about. And it's not like this is the first presidency that ever raises the question about abuse of power. But Trump has raised questions about abuse of power that are both different in kind and different in degree. This accumulated excess and temptations to overreach in executive authority brought to a head in ways that we really couldn't imagine I think, by Donald Trump. And that's even before we got uh, to uh, the extraordinary events of recent weeks since the election. In each episode of After Trump, we'll take a few principles about how the presidency works, how it should work. We'll examine the philosophical and historical grounding of those principles, and then we'll detail how exactly Trump blew through them. Finally, we'll examine what Congress or a new administration might do to restore and fortify them. So let's get down to it. And to keep our reformist energy high, let's start with Trump's most brazen, almost cartoonish transgressions, the conflicts of interest, the self-dealing, and of course, those elusive taxes. This is part one. Follow the money. I have legally used the tax laws to my benefit. And to the benefit of my company, my investors, and my employees. I mean... Do you believe voters have a right to see your tax returns before they make a final decision? I don't think they do, but I I do say this. uh, I will really gladly give them. They're not going to learn anything, but it's under routine audit. I'm not going to be doing deals at all. An unprecedented opportunity for corruption at the highest level. Now that would be, I don't even know if that's a conflict. I mean, I, I have the right to do it. You know, under the law, I have the right to do it. I just don't want to do it. CNN analysis shows Trump has business dealings in at least 25 countries, including Saudi Arabia, China, Azerbaijan. I will absolutely give my return, but I'm being audited now. Lobbyists and foreign officials paid top dollar at Trump properties like his Mar-a-Lago resort and Washington Hotel. Transactions that could be seen as conflicts of interest as the president did not divest from those businesses when taking office. So you'll put your assets in a blind trust? I would put it in a blind trust. Well, I don't know if it's a blind trust if Ivanka Dunn and Eric run it, but is that a blind trust? I don't know. Call me crazy, but like most Americans, I learned early on that the president of the United States serves the people. Most of us, maybe even all of us, believe that's a good thing. But what if the public has no ability to know whether or not the president is serving the people and not his or her own interests? The Trump presidency and Trump's lack of financial transparency created the perfect storm. Trump was and is, first and foremost, a self-promoter and a businessman. It's clear in just about everything he says and does. 
He owns properties. His name is licensed across the world. And he's long had deals, sometimes sketchy liaisons with foreign governments. He continued this nasty habit even as president. And that led to conflicts, or at least appearances of conflicts. Sometimes it seemed as though Trump were using the highest office in the land to direct money to his own gilded coffers. The journalist David Farenthold covered this extensively for The Washington Post. Trump says he's pulled back from day-to-day leadership of his businesses, but he still owns them. And he still goes to them all the time. So what is the financial relationship between the Trump's government, the U.S. government at the time, and Trump's business? Um, that's something we knew existed, but we had really no idea what the parameters of it were, what dollar amounts were involved. His work actually developed into a beat that covered the complicated business and financial ties of Donald Trump. What people don't understand is that Trump the person is Trump the business. There's no separate Trump organization that's incorporated separately. He owns everything personally through these layers of LLCs. And so everything, the business's assets are his personal assets. That's how he counts them. So. Over four years, David attempted to give glimpses into the opaque world of Trump's financial books. What he turned up was substantial, but it only led to more questions. The first peek we got into this norm-breaking was Trump's tax returns. Or rather, the absence of his tax returns. Trump promised to release them, he shifted the goalposts, and he outright lied. The potential, there's, there's so much potential here because, of the, because it's so opaque. And the Trump organization's response was, just trust us. And the Trump administration's response was basically just not to respond. Uh, so, right, there's the potential that Trump could profiteer off his own government by, you know, dr- making the government spend money in his properties and then charging him whatever he wants. There's also the possibility that foreign governments, foreign leaders could try to influence Trump by staying in his properties or acquiescing to a summit at one of his properties that put money in his pocket. I mean, when, when every, you know, in so many of the president's travels involved self-enrichment, involved helping himself, that anything that affects Trump's travel schedule or anybody else's travel schedule to Washington could be a way that you might try to gain an upper hand with the United States of America by putting a few extra dollars in Donald Trump's pocket. In the run-up to his inauguration, Trump created a sort of original sin when it came to his conflicts of interest. He held a press conference to announce how he'd be candid and honest about his business dealings, but it amounted to little more than kabuki. Good morning. It's my honor and privilege to be here today at President-elect Trump's request. He's asked me, as you've just heard, to speak about the conflicts of interest and the steps he's taking. As you know, the business empire built by President-elect Trump over the years is massive. Just to be clear, the gold standard for an incoming president would have been complete divestiture. He would have sold his properties or kept his assets held by some other party, a blind trust. Other presidents had done this with no problem. But as Bob Bauer puts it. And Trump had wanted no part of that. With all of his diverse and frankly weird financial holdings, it would take a lot of work for Trump to cut out conflict of interest from his presidency. So he created a new standard. Trump passed control of his assets to his sons. Problem solved. His business interests were so complex and there was so much at stake. Uh, It was so difficult to do, to follow that model. Over the weekend, I was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai with it. Because as you know, I have a no conflict situation. So I could actually run my business. I could actually run my business and run government. All of these papers that you see here. Uh, That 
he would come up with some kind of ad hoc trust arrangement that would, in theory, quote, achieve complete separation of the president from his business interests. But there was no guarantee the way it set up that it would happen. And there's every reason to believe that it didn't. A blind trust controlled by his children, which he could access at any time, receive quarterly updates from. Oh, and on top of that, no legal mechanism for enforcing any violations of his own rules. This led to some serious alarm bells from career ethics officials, notably the great Walter Schaub, who was then director of the Office of Government Ethics. He made a point of saying that, yes, it is true that there wasn't much to guide or compel Donald Trump in dealing with these conflicts of interest between the assumption of the presidential power and his private business interests. Walter gave a firebrand speech at the Brookings Institution in 2016. Stepping back from running his positions is meaningless from a conflicts of interest perspective. The idea of setting up a trust to hold his operating businesses adds nothing to the equation. This is not a blind trust. It's not even close. I think Politico called this a half-blind trust, but it's not even halfway blind. The only thing it has in common with a blind trust is the label, trust. There had been a norm in place that presidents would follow the same conflict of interest requirements that senior government officials themselves follow, others, subordinate officials follow, and organize their interests into a legitimate blind trust and you know separate themselves from investment decisions in a formal way and so forth. As I said, every president in modern times has taken the strong medicine of divestiture. This means OGE directors could always point to the president as a model. They could also always rely on the president's implicit assurance of support if anyone balked at doing what OGE asked them to do. Officials in any administration need their president to show ethics matters, not only through words, but through deeds. This is vitally important if we're going to have any kind of ethics program. I think one of the, one of the many big lessons in the last four or five years, it's hard to have an entirely rules-based society or order that norms are very important. This is David Korn, political journalist and author. David's been tracking Trump's conflicts and ties to outside groups since Trump was just a candidate. One good example is there is an Office of Government Ethics. Join the White House or other branches of government. You submit your personal finances and they go over that and they kind of say, well, we think you have stock in this company. and You may have to deal with these issues. And, you know, there's a potential conflict here. Uh, we need to do something about this. And usually, I'm almost entirely until the Trump years, the person would, you know, going into the government position would say, okay, uh, what do we do? I can sell it. I can put it in a blind trust if it's part of my company. I, there are other financial ways to deal with this. And they work with the Office of Government Ethics to basically uh, minimize or get rid of this potential conflict. So many of us, both in and out of government, were caught flat-footed when Trump threw ethical standards out the window. Trump, when Trump comes in with Jared and Ivanka and everybody else, it's like, we don't need your stinking ethics. We don't need your Office of Government Ethics. Fine. How many troops do you really have? There are no ethics yes. police officers who come and round you up if you don't work with them to to get rid of these potential conflicts. But this is where things get tricky. There's must do and should do, the law and the norm. Constitutional law is a supreme law of the land that presidents are sworn to faithfully enforce. 
even when those laws bind the presidents themselves. And then, of course, there are other laws that govern executive branch officials in various ways. But norms are different. These are non-legal principles of expected behavior that presidents and other officials accept as part of their jobs. Examples of norms include holding regular press conferences, taking regular intelligence briefings, maintaining distance from the attorney general, and even getting an annual medical checkup and announcing the results. Sounds simple, right? Here's Walt Schaub again. What we've learned this year is that our ethical infrastructure was built on a premise that there were certain ethical norms in place and people were following them. And when you pull those away, well, that's what was underpinning the legal structure. There are holes in the legal structure because we didn't need laws to address certain things because the political process was enough of an insurance policy. You would face being voted out of office if you behaved in a certain way or impeached. Barring his engaging in genuinely corrupt conduct, like, for example, selling a piece of policy for money uh, poured into one of his businesses, uh, but for that, that arrangement is, you know, at least on paper, legal. It's not advisable. It's not ethical. It's porous. It allows for abuse and potentially even for violations of law. But as set up a conflict of interest mechanism, uh, he is operating within a very liberal zone. Who boy did Trump plunge into that gray zone and he set up shop there. Over his four years, the White House and federal agencies jumped in with him. Suddenly, they insisted that this president did not have to disclose his financial interests. In their view, the presidency was above conflicts of interest. This leads us to Jack and Bob's first reform, changing a norm into a law. Bob and Jack argue that presidents need a structure that forces them to abide by conflict of interest rules, and not just out of the goodness of their own hearts. So how should presidents tackle conflicts while in office? Bob and Jack's solutions are actually not that complicated. These solutions hinge on acknowledging three things. First off, the presidency is a full-time job. It's not secondary to golf or personal business. Second, the Congress has a serious role to play in constraining private activity of a president. And third, the American people have a right to know what the private interests of the president are. And our proposal in this book, that presidents should be subject uh, to uh, far-reaching and enforceable conflict of interest requirements. Jack and Bob propose that the president cannot have an active or supervisory role in any business while president. Let's begin with transparency in thinking about conflict of interest reform. We should know what the president's financial holdings are and that there is no trust arrangement that can be set up that is going to satisfy people that we have comprehensive conflict of interest reforms that we don't know what the president's financial interests are and how they might be impacted by official decisions that he makes. With this reform, a president will have to certify every year that they know they'll be subject to criminal penalties for making false statements. They'll have to further certify they're meeting that obligation. This means, yes, president also can't direct funds to his or her personal assets. Don't abuse the public trust to get rich. That's the gist. Because we want the president to have no knowledge of what's precisely taking place in his or her business. Presidents should be completely separated in a way that Trump has not been 
from the management or any kind of substantive involvement in his or her business. There's another check on the president's truthfulness and candor. Any businesses that have deals or prospective deals with the president must disclose that information as well. Uh, We believe that any business in which the president has a financial interest should have a reporting requirement. Trump had ongoing visibility into how his business was being managed. He had quarterly briefings uh, with one of his sons. He was able to learn a lot about what he was doing, what was going on inside the business, its strengths, its weaknesses, its fortunes, its misfortunes. And we have to be troubled that that could influence the way that he makes decisions that he thought could impact those fortunes or redress those misfortunes. So our view is he requires complete separation from the business. He needs to certify, subject to criminal penalty, any president needs to, uh, that he or she has had no supervisory or other involvement whatsoever in the business, and the business itself uh, should have an obligation to publicly report the ongoing interests that the president holds. If businesses also have to show receipts, it makes the parties involved liable for not being forthcoming or transparent. So you have, on the one hand, a president certifying they're not engaging in any business outside the presidency, and you have businesses that hold financial ties to the presidency disclosing publicly through financial statements to prove it. Had we had a reform like this in place, Trump would have been unable uh, to do what he did, which is to outsource the structure of his trust as he chose with a private lawyer who would explain what he was prepared to give up and what he wasn't, what ongoing involvement he was willing to have and what he would have to give up. As you recall, he advised through counsel when that trust arrangement was set up that the trust would have a compliance officer and an outside ethics advisor and that any new deals, quote unquote, would be subject to ethics review. But we have no idea Uh, what was subject to ethics review. We have no idea what was taken and what was rejected. We just don't know. It's a black box. And that wouldn't be possible. None of that would have been possible. He would have had to separate himself completely from the business. He would have had to deny himself all access whatsoever to information about how the business was running. He could not have discussed it with his son, could not have discussed it, by the way, as appears to have been the case uh, with other employees in the business whenever that occasion arose that he could have those conversations. He would have had to certify subject to criminal penalties that he had complied, and he would have to do so on an annual basis with those requirements. That would give Congress the basis, by the way, for ongoing oversight, which it didn't conduct at all uh, meaningfully into these business matters, of course, controlled by the president's own party for a substantial portion of that period. Right now, as Trump made clear, presidents can cook up any rule they like to deny they're making money off the presidency. A president can hold a fraud press conference and say, sure, he's going to de-conflict and follow ethic rules. And then immediately after, he can do not a single one of the things he promised to do. And the American people would have no idea. The reform proposed in After Trump creates a clear window on this kind of presidential behavior. And like a lot of reforms in the book, it's a simple solution to a complex problem. Trump's flagrant norm-breaking has proved that the country needs an effective mechanism to ensure that the president is answerable to the people and not to another master like a business entity, a business partner, or his own rapacious greed. 
Three separate House committees had subpoenaed the president's financial information from his accounting firm and from his banks, Capital One and Deutsche Bank. What they wanted was information about the president's financial activities. This is a political witch hunt, the likes of which nobody's ever seen before. It's a pure witch hunt. It's a hoax. Just like the Mueller investigation was a hoax that I won. What reassurances, if any, can you give the American people that you are not looking to profit off the presidency? People have asked me, what do you think it costs? And between opportunity, not doing things, I used to get a lot of money to make speeches. Now I give speeches all the time. You know what I get? Zippo, and that's good. This all leads us to the other financial problem of the Trump presidency, tax returns. Specifically, the lack of them. Donald Trump is a deviation from the norm of presidential candidates and presidents releasing their tax returns. The norm was established in the Carter administration and followed pretty much faithfully ever since. And Trump is a deviation, but I would say maybe not an entirely unexpected one, or it shouldn't have been unexpected, maybe more to the point. Since the 1970s, presidents have released their tax returns. It was almost a foregone conclusion in American presidential races until 2016, when the goalposts kept shifting. If I decide to run for office, I'll produce my tax returns, absolutely. And uh, I would love to do that. I did produce actually. How, how many years back would you go on the day you announced? Three, five? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually have not even thought of that. But I would certainly show tax returns if it was necessary. At least a couple Can of you years. Can any closer to releasing your tax returns? Well, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about maybe when we find out the true story on Hillary's uh, emails. You know, I've been saying that for a while. Let's find yeah, out the true story. But you know what? And I, I, I'm very honest on my tax returns. What is your tax rate? I'm not going to say it, but at some point I'll release it. But I pay as little as possible. I'm very proud to tell you. And I will say this. Perhaps it's not surprising that one day that would happen, that we'd have a president who would refuse uh, to release the returns. Now, Donald Trump brought to it of course, a high level of mendacity, as he always does, to his public pronouncements on anything that he particularly cares about. And in this particular instance, he made up some story about his returns being continually under audit. I will absolutely give my return, but I'm being audited now for two or three years, so I can't do it until the audit is finished. And he made commitments uh, to release at some point that he clearly had no intention of keeping. But in that sense, the absolute refusal, the mendacity, and the aggressive defense of that position are all major deviations from the norm. Quick note, the voice you're about to hear, it's the voice of Lawfare's own Bryce Clem. From time to time, when we need to hear Trump's tweets, Bryce will channel them. Just for your info, tax returns have zero to do with someone's net worth. I've already filed my financial statements with FEC. They are great. So much of the problem stems from not being able to take the word of the president at face value. In Trump's case, it's only when President Trump's niece, Mary Trump, spoke out about the family finances and collaborated with The New York Times that Trump's tax schemes were exposed. Here's Mary Trump. I have a really vivid recollection of the, this is literally the day of my grandfather's funeral. We're sitting in the library in my grandparents' house reading the New York Times obituary of my grandfather, which was not flattering. It became clear why Trump's taxes were kept opaque. Trump had inherited an approach to financial management from his father, Fred, which involved grossly exaggerating his net worth to get loans and minimizing it to peanuts at tax time. 
somebody had called Robert for a quote, and in that article, he told the reporter that my grandfather's estate was worth between 250 and $300 million. So as they're reading it, Marianne and Donald look at each other, and they start screaming at Robert, you never give them numbers. You never give them numbers. And we see why. It became an urgent project for the Trump family, including Trump's siblings, Robert and Marianne. Keep the real numbers secret. And then, uh, I don't know, not even a year later, they're not trying to. They actually convinced my really execrable attorney that the estate was only worth $50 million. Mary had become very worried after her uncle was elected president. She had her family's shady financial practices at the forefront of her mind. And that's when Suzanne Craig of The New York Times approached her to see if she could shed light on Trump's taxes. She began helping them put together the pieces. Thanks to uh, the documents that I handed over to The New York Times back in 2017 and that they so brilliantly uh, pieced together and uh, interpreted was that in addition to not paying taxes, uh, Donald actually didn't have any money that was his. Everything came from my grandfather uh, and they were doing all sorts of things like my my grandfather would quote unquote loan one of Donald's properties 15 million dollars and then the loan would never be paid which is tax fraud Uh, or he would invest in something but never seek any benefits from that quote unquote investment. In order to avoid paying what would have been probably half a billion dollars in estate taxes, they created a shell corporation called All County. And what All County did was they became the middleman and they would say buy a boiler and then sell it to one of my grandfather's buildings for twice what it cost them. and. Every time he did something egregious and was enabled to do something egregious, it it was like a personal, it felt like a personal blow. So when Suzanne Craig knocked on my door saying that they believe, she and her team believed that I had documentations in my possession that could help them quote unquote rewrite the financial history of the Trump family, I was basically like, yeah, see ya. Also, I was I my attitude was sort of where were you guys before the election? And that's precisely the problem. The New York Times obtaining information on President Trump's tax returns. The Times reporting the president paid just seven hundred fifty dollars in taxes in 2016 and again in his first year in office. In 2020, a report from The New York Times revealed that President Trump paid virtually no personal income taxes. For many years, Trump's assertions about his finances were less than truthful. Some part of the tax return information was disclosed in 2020, and it turned out he had paid virtually no federal tax in, I think, two consecutive years. That didn't seem to have much of an impact, uh, certainly on his quote-unquote base. Uh, Totally fake news. Now, actually, I paid tax, but and you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. It's underwater. They've been underwater for a long time. It took nearly four years and a slew of corroborating witnesses to highlight even one piece of the president's Byzantine finances. And then the president waved all this away from the podium, which only made things more difficult for voters. 
Here was the evidence that the president was misleading the public, claiming to be a billionaire while paying less in taxes than almost to anyone. The president claimed that all that was made up in fake news, but there was no way for the public to know for sure because he still refused to provide those tax returns. It is certainly true that had the returns been released, there would have been follow-up questions that were possible that without the returns could never have been asked because the returns disclose a good bit of information that the annual financial disclosure reports that presidents and other senior executive branch officials and candidates have to file don't. They don't provide that more granular information and therefore they don't raise the kinds of questions that he would be required to answer. The president can make all the claims he wants about charitable giving and his ties to foreign governments, but with no ability to fact-check those claims, we're in the dark, which is why when bombshell reporting happens, it can cause a serious credibility crisis for the executive branch. So, point blank, Democrats go after your tax returns. Will you try to block that or will you allow them to have Well, them? look, uh, people don't understand tax returns. It's a very complex uh, instrument, and I think that uh, people wouldn't understand reports it. reports on President Trump's finances, claiming he failed to repay millions in loans as a businessman, and that while in office, he funneled millions of taxpayer dollars to his properties like his private Florida club, Mar-a-Lago. Which leads us to the other reform of the president's finances. Anybody who's thinking, therefore, running for office ought to be both thinking about getting the financial disclosure requirements, the broader ones, ready, but also the release of tax returns. Disclosure. Just like personal conflicts, giving the American people verifiable insight into the president's financial ties and tax interests is crucial. Specifically, the reform would look like this. The... Candidacy would trigger an obligation uh, to disclose the returns so it would be available to the voting public within 30 days of candidacy or May 15th, whichever is later. Once you announce yourself as a candidate for the presidency, you have a ticking clock that starts just like the campaign finance disclosure that all candidates make when running for office. This is another requirement. We think that anybody uh, on the ballot who could win 270 votes, not only major party candidates, ought to have their returns disclosed. If you're a major candidate on the ballot in enough states to win the Electoral College, you must disclose your tax returns. Simple enough. The president can't recuse himself from being president, besides resigning, that is. And that means it falls to the public, the media, and the political process to ensure that past presidents have carried out their duties ethically. Over the decades, this has appeared to be a pretty durable norm. Then came Donald Trump. By the fourth year of his term, Trump had slipped into immoral behavior as no president before him had done, fusing his private business with America's highest office. And it was all in plain sight. Trump spent one out of every three days as president visiting one of his luxury resorts, hotels, or golf courses. Of all the reforms Jack and Bob propose in after Trump, these reforms are the simplest. There's a very clear way to address financial misconduct by presidents. The fix is simply codifying the very thing that presidents have been doing for decades. 
Donald Trump leveraged his powerful international platform to promote his developments dozens of times, and he directed millions of dollars in taxpayer funds to his businesses around the globe. The norm hasn't just been stretched, it's been shattered. The government's top ethics watchdog is calling it quits after repeated clashes with the Trump administration. A goodbye, we love you, we will be back in some form. When President Trump leaves office, he'll return to the world of average citizen, a world without special privileges and immunities of the presidency. There are credible allegations that Donald Trump has engaged in uh, tax fraud, uh, bankruptcy fraud, uh, probate fraud, and that's unprecedented. The conflicts, the taxes, the self-dealing, it all comes down to the most basic principle of government, trust. We have to trust that our elected leaders are operating with the country's interests first. The president today has a massive arsenal of power at his or her disposal. We have to trust that our leaders aren't using these powers, the ones we gave them, for their own use. Because trust is the glue that holds together a norm. But what happens when someone says, no thank you? to these norms or pretends not to care, and then does the opposite behind closed doors, what happens then? In the wake of events like the Capitol riot, the global pandemic, and extensive social unrest in the U.S., will this issue be given enough attention so that President Trump is the last president to skip the public interest and have taxpayers serve his personal bottom line? We hope so. After Trump is based on the book After Trump, written by Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer from Lawfare Press. This podcast only scratches the surface of these topics. To learn more, to get in the weeds, pick up After Trump by going to aftertrumppod.com slash book. This episode was written by me, by Benjamin Wittes, and by Zachary Frank. This podcast is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. The series is hosted and executive produced by me, Virginia Heffernan. From the Goat Rodeo team, scripting and audio production from Zachary Frank, editing by Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, production assistance from Rohini Korup and Bryce Clem. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief. Subscribe to this series for more episodes of After Trump, and be sure to help our work by leaving us a rating and review. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.